Good morning and Happy New Year, Grace Point. We are so glad you're with us for this first Sunday of a new year, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. Uh, wherever you are in the world, however you found us, we're so glad you're here and we hope this has been a meaningful experience for you today. Um, it, it is a new year. I wonder how many of us, and, and it has been, it has taken all of my willpower to not make some sort of, wow, I can't believe I haven't seen you all since last year joke, but I'm not going to do it. Um, instead, I'm going to ask, has anybody made any New Year's resolutions? That's a thing that happens this time of year. Um, I see that hand out there in, on the internet. Um, I don't see that hand. <laughs> but anyway, um, did you make any resolutions? And uh, I tend to want to make resolutions. I often make them and break them at pretty record speeds. But I actually don't think that's the best way to talk about what we're trying to get at with, with making resolutions. So let's save that for the end today, and maybe we'll come back around to it. Uh, before we jump in, I want to tell you, next week, we're starting January 10th, we're starting a brand new series called What is Progressive Christianity? And the goal of this series, I know lots of people have joined us in the last two years. Lots of you have joined us since we went virtual back in March uh, of last year. And so lots of questions have been, what are, you know, Grace Point is a progressive Christian church. What does that mean? What does it mean to say we're progressive? What does it mean to say we're Christian? And then what are all the other things that are sort of attached to those words, like how we approach things, how we view things, our values. And so beginning next week, we're going to launch a month or two series probably where we're going to just engage around this idea of what do we mean when we say progressive Christian and why, why is that where Grace Point is? And so hopefully, um, it, you know, hopefully you can join us, um, catch, catch it on podcast if you can't, but I think this will be a really helpful series for us uh, as a community moving forward. But today, as we begin a new year, uh, I want to think about the, the church calendar. And when I say church calendar, I don't mean Grace Point's calendar. Uh, I mean the, the global church calendar, the, the, the calendar that determines the rhythms of life for churches all over the world. And where we are in that calendar is we just finished the season of Advent. Advent begins the new year on, on the church calendar. And then we come from Advent into Christmas, and then at the end of Christmas, we come to January 6th. And on January 6th, there is a new, we enter into a new season, and it's called Epiphany. And Epiphany is celebrated on the Sunday closest to January 6th, which is today. Uh, and Epiphany essentially, the, the word, I mean, we know the word, right? It means like we have a sudden realization or we have this revelation about something that we've been, like it just hits us. It's, it's been, something's been revealed to us that we were missing before. And the word actually means an appearance or manifestation. So Epiphany celebrates really two events, uh, focuses on two events in uh, on the Christian story. One is the baptism of Jesus. Um, and so Jesus is baptized. He goes into the water. He comes out of the water. And the skies open and a dove descends. And he hears the voice of the divine say, you are my beloved son. You bring me great joy. And so that is sort of this moment where for, for, for lots of people, they say this may be the moment where Jesus sort of begins to understand his calling in the world. So that's a central event. Another event happens back in, uh, to the, toward the beginning of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's, it's the adoration of the Magi. It celebrates and marks these. And they weren't wise, we call them wise men. We call them kings. They're actually Magi. They're astrologers. It celebrates that these, uh, these astrologers, the Magi, journeyed to Bethlehem to meet the newborn child who is being called king, right? And so that story is really about Jesus being revealed to the larger world, right? The, the adoration of the Magi represents Jesus being revealed to people beyond the boundaries of his own faith that he was uh, brought into the world as. And what really both of those try to get at, and I think what the season tries to get at, is that for, for Christians, 
Um, Jesus also, especially the early Christians use this language all the time, that, that Jesus is a, a revelation, an epiphany of God, that somehow Jesus is a, a look, peek behind the curtain into what God means. Listen to this early Christian poetry from the book of Colossians. Christ is the image of the unseen God. Christ is the image of the unseen God. Now, the writer of this text, Colossians, was written sometime in the 80s, not 1980s, but just 80s. And it calls Christ, when he, the, the writer uses this language, Christ is the image of the unseen God. This is not a physical description, right? It's not saying, well, there's an anthropomorphized God somewhere in the sky and Jesus looks just like him. Like, like maybe we would say um, that somebody's the spitting image of their parent or that somebody looks just like her aunt at that age. Or like, how are we use that language? That's not what the, the language means. For the early Christians, it means that in the life and experience of Jesus, Jesus shows something about what God is like. Jesus reveals something about what God is like. Jesus embodies a love, a compassion, a grace, a generosity, and even the passion of God. Um, the, the thing that moves God like, toward justice in the world. And so with that in mind, Jesus somehow gives us a window into the divine. And also, I don't think that can just limit it to Jesus when we talk more about that. But here's what I want to ask today. What does Jesus teach us about God? Like if we look into the life of Jesus, what do we learn? And I'll be honest with you, as I was working on this sermon, it became quickly evident that if I traced every, every idea, everything I wanted to say, every rabbit trail, that we would be here for probably five or six hours. I, I didn't know for sure that you all would sign up for that today. Um, so I decided I'm just going to share one thing. And I wanted, I'm going to share one thing, and I want to develop the one thing. And then what I hope happens is that in your own journey, in your own conversations, maybe you begin to take, take this further. Like, what other things about God, what other lessons do we learn from the life of Jesus? And so I want to begin with this. I, I think the central thing for me at this point that Jesus shows us about God, and I don't think Jesus would have used this language, but it's, it's what I think is going on is that God is less of a noun and more of a verb. God, it, God really isn't a noun. When we're talking about God, we're talking about a verb. And here's what I mean. When Jesus talks about God or the kingdom of God, it is always in the context of action. Sure, Jesus says a lot of words about God, but those words are always coupled with real concrete action in the world. Healings, meals, uh, physical, practical, embodied compassion. Right? Everything Jesus says about God ends up having some sort of way to be launched into the world to make the world a transformed, more healed place. And perhaps this is where the Christian tradition has gone off the rails a bit. We've placed more value and emphasis on having the right words about God as if anybody knows what those are. Right? We're all doing, well, maybe not all, but many of us are doing the best we can. But even then, we know that we're, we're still just, at, we're, it's a finger pointing to the moon. We're still trying to put language onto something that is mysterious and beyond us. We've placed so much emphasis on having the right words about God and less value on doing the work of God in the world. We've emphasized what Jesus said sometimes to the exclusion of what he did. What Jesus said matters only because of what he did in the world. That, that's really part of the issue I have with like church creeds, right? They emphasize all the, all the sort of church Christian creeds uh, emphasize the beginning of Jesus' life and the end of Jesus' life. 
but they leave out that spot in the middle, which is actually what gives the beginning and end significance. Jesus' actual life, what he did between those two things, between entering and leaving the world, is actually what gives meaning to everything that happened. What happens at the beginning and end, yes, we can have holidays around those, but the reason we're still talking about Jesus is because of who he was in in the in between. Jesus' life calls us to verbify. I think that's an actual word. I looked it up. Uh, if not, we just, we'll just we trademark it. Jesus' life calls us to verbify our understanding of God, to embrace a bigger reality than any doctrine or dogma or box that we would put or orthodoxy can contain. Right? When, we, when we have this understanding that we, we can boil God down into basic, um, you know, oh, this, this theological truth, this theological point, this is all we need. When we, when we get to that point, um, we're not dealing with God anymore. Right? So Jesus is calling us beyond the boxes, beyond the orthodoxies, beyond the doctrines and dogmas. It's a call beyond thoughts and prayers for the hurting, the hungry, and the marginalized, because thoughts and prayers don't heal, don't feed, and don't include. Right? Jesus is calling us to something else. Jesus inspired wonder and possibility in his first followers. He insisted that God was something that we could participate in, right? God isn't just something we theorize about. God is a reality in which we can participate. And when we do that, when we open ourselves up to the potential that somehow we can participate in what God's doing in the world, everything and anything can become possible. Their journey with Jesus calls them to imagine what the world could be like. And then it calls them to begin to try to create that world. They held all kinds of egalitarian meals, right? I mean, in, in the ancient world where meals were, were more regimented and more boundaried and more uh, arranged by social status than, you know, a, at a middle school lunchroom. Like, it was, it was, if you're a woman, you're not included. If you're not a rich male, you're not included. Like, so there's all this sort of stratification and, and all these boundary lines. And the first Christians wiped those out because of their experience with Jesus and Jesus doing this. And they held these egalitarian meals, a kind of subversive boundary-breaking practice that, and I think we have to think about this sadly, sadly, the, the early, what were the Eucharist meals? Sadly, in, in history, have turned into some sort of litmus test of orthodoxy. Right? The tragic irony of the Eucharist is that what began as a subversive practice that challenged the social norms of its day is now used to exclude and marginalize those who don't check all the right doctrinal boxes. When God is a verb, we begin to realize that the central point, the real work we've been given to do in the world, is not to believe the right things, but to participate in the transformation of the world. So how do we begin to verbify God? How do we begin to see God as a reality that we can participate in? And then maybe what does that have to do with with 2021? I want to offer um, a few things that I think have a dual purpose. One is I, I think that these are the ways for me that as I'm leaning into this idea of, of God as a verb, these are some of the things that I feel have emerged for me as helpful ways to begin to, to verbify God in the world. But the other thing is, uh, you know, we, these, these are also really, would be really good. And, and the reason I say resolution is a bad word is, not a bad word, but maybe an unhelpful way to think about it is because resolutions are meant to be broken. Like we, uh, generally we go into them knowing that. Yeah, I'm going to start this and I'll do it for a few weeks, but whatever happens, happens. So instead of seeing these as resolutions, what if we saw these next few things I'm going to share as commitments? Commitments that we're not going to be perfect at all the time. 
right? Because it seems like a resolution. If I if I say I'm going to exercise every day for half an hour and then I skip a day and then I'm like, well, I already skipped a day and I skipped two days and then suddenly I'm, I'm you know right back in the same spot I was in. But what if we saw these as commitments that we do our best to follow through, uh, and knowing that there are going to be moments when we don't do them. Uh, but instead of allowing those moments to make us feel guilty or ashamed, what if we allow those moments to just be wake-up calls to move back in to these commitments? So I, I want to share some commitments I'm trying to, to in, sort of uh, embed in my own life and practice, and hopefully they'll help us serve this dual role of, of seeing a way to actually embody God in a verbified way in the world, and then maybe for how we live in this new year. I want to begin with this. I think one of the ways we verbify God is we cultivate awareness and intentionality. I have to admit, I am, I am not the most observant human being a lot of the time. I'm also a tad forgetful, uh, to say the least. I actually lost, um, I actually had a set of keys once that I lost so often that I got a second set of keys made. And then I realized I was really in trouble when I lost both the original set and the backup set. Um, I realized that maybe maybe I, I need to, so now I have uh, this little thing on my, it's called a tile on my uh, on my car key that if I lose it, I can make it make a sound, right? Like you, you get the picture. Like I, I tend to be a little forgetful. I tend to just sort of move at a certain speed in the world. And, and I think that's been the problem. I've been moving so fast uh, from one thing to the next, trying to keep all the plates spinning, trying to do all the things. And in the process, I lose and forget things because I'm moving so fast all the time. Like, of course, you know, I'd get in the car and get halfway, you know, down the road and then I have to turn around and come back because I forgot my mask or I forgot uh, my bag or I forgot, like, I forgot something, right? Because I'm moving so fast. Everything happens at such a speed that everything sort of just, I just forget things. And so one of my goals uh, as we move into not only a new year, but as I move into a new, uh, this new approach that I'm trying to have toward God is God is a verb, not a noun. Um, is I want to make sure that I cultivate an awareness. I want to make sure that I'm intentional and that I'm aware of what's going on in the world, of what's going on in me, of what's going on in our, in our community. And as a result, I hope that that intentionality will open me up to all sorts of things I'm missing right now. The central story in the Hebrew Bible is the story of Exodus. When an enslaved group of Israelites were liberated by God through the leadership, the reluctant leadership of a man named Moses. And Moses had a really complicated story. He was an Israelite who ended up becoming the adopted grandson of the Pharaoh, the very person who was oppressing his people. And so Moses grew up with sort of this dual identity, both as a member of an oppressed people, but also uh, living in Pharaoh's house and privilege. One day, those two identities Moses had clashed. He saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite slave. And so Moses responds by killing the Egyptian and burying him. But word gets out and Moses leaves Egypt. He spends about 40 years in the desert. He gets married and Egypt sort of becomes a memory for him. Until one day when he encounters this burning bush. I want to read you a little bit of the story. Moses was tending the, from Exodus 3, sorry. Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro the priest of Midian, leading the flock deep into the wilderness, Moses came to Horeb, also called Sinai in some, some uh, sources, the mountain of God, the messenger of Yahweh, which is the name God will reveal to Moses in this text. The messenger of Yahweh appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of a thorn bush. Moses saw the bushes ablaze with fire, and yet it isn't consumed. Moses said, let me go over and look at this remarkable sight and see why the bush doesn't burn up. When Yahweh saw Moses coming to look more closely, God called out to him from the midst of the bush, Moses, 
Moses. And then he tells, God tells Moses, take off your shoes because the ground you're standing on is holy. It's in this moment when Moses sees the burning bush and he stops, that he's drafted into God's liberation movement. Rabbis have talked about this text for generations wondering, was the bush always burning? Was the ground always holy? And there was this moment where Moses recognizes, he sees, and when he sees and recognizes, he becomes aware, he stops and he removes his shoes because he realizes he's, he's a part of something sacred. When I talk about awareness, I'm talking about becoming more intentional about how we live, about how we use the limited time and energy we have. Because we definitely, we are not an endless source of time and energy. Um, and so how, how are we going to use what we have in the world? Awareness is about slowing down. It's about realizing what's actually happening in the world and then finding ways to enjoy. It's not about creating everything. It's not about coming up with all the things. It's about watching what's going on in the world and seeing the good that we can put our energy to do, used to do in the world. That's how we practice God as a verb, by joining and participating in the work of healing and transforming the world. And that work doesn't begin with us and it doesn't end with us. But we are here in our little blip on the radar of history and we are being invited to join in the work of transforming creation. And if we become aware, if we will just pause every now and then, build in rhythms of rest, build in rhythms where we're not running so fast and we can begin to see, oh, that, that bush is burning. and Oh, that ground has always been holy. Second, I, I want to commit myself to using my imagination. As a kid, um, I, I'm an only, only child, and uh, one of the things my parents would still say is that for, to be an only child, I, I could be in my room playing, and it sounded like there were a lot of kids in there. I, I always loved my imagination as a kid. I loved getting lost there, but something happens to us as we begin to grow up, and somehow all the stress and pressure and strain of life sort of and we see, oh, using our imagination, maybe that's not the best use of our time, but I actually think one of the great problems in our world right now is that we lack imagination. We face so many challenges. And I mean, you, you can think about COVID, you can think about the planetary crisis, you can think about the economic crisis, you can think about our just judicial justice system crisis. We have so many crises facing us and what we need, it's people with imagination for how, because look, we, there are so many of these issues that are very, very on their own when it's not all happening together. Some of these issues are very like, I don't even know. Like, it feels like we would just be trying to enter the ocean with a teaspoon. Um, it just seems impossible. Well, maybe it does. But what if we were to begin to think creatively? There's this moment in the Gospels where Jesus has been followed. He's trying to get away and have some, uh, some time. But he's been followed by a massive crowd and of more than 5,000 people. It says 5,000, the way they would have counted this in the ancient world, unfortunately, it was 5,000 men plus women and children. So a, a lot of people. And at the end of the day, he has this conversation with his disciples in Matthew 14. As evening drew on, the disciples approached Jesus and said, This is a deserted place and it is already late. Dismiss the crowd so they can go to the villages and buy some food for themselves. Now, what you have to understand, it's very likely um, these folks following Jesus probably were from the peasant class, which means they don't go into the village and buy food for themselves. Um, if they're going to eat, it's, it's, it's going to have to be provided as a part of Jesus' teaching. And so Jesus says to them, there is no need for them to disperse. Give them something to eat yourselves. I, can you just imagine the scenario where 
you're one of Jesus' disciples and you think you're doing the kind of, oh, we need, we've kept an eye here too long. We need to cut this thing off so they can go get something to eat. And Jesus looks at you and goes, no, 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 no. Don't send them away. You feed them. You feed them. Can you imagine? Well, I mean, maybe that's the problem, right? Like the disciples in this moment, they, they can't imagine anything bigger. And Jesus says, no, no, let's, what if we put some imagination to this? When we, and of course, if you want a spoiler alert, they end up sitting the people down in groups and they feed them with a very small lunch and everybody has more than they need and they have leftovers, right? Like this, this Jesus teaches them essentially how to community organize, how to get people, if everybody sits down in groups and we all share, we're, we're going to be okay. What if we could begin to see the opportunities in front of us and challenges as being moments for creative and imaginative participation in what God's doing in the world? What if God doesn't want you to switch off your brain and your imagination and just believe some stuff? What if God is saying, actually, if we're going to, if we're going to change the world, if God is a verb, then we need your creativity and we need your imagination. Uh, and they aren't working against your spirituality. They are beautiful parts of your spirituality. And then the last thing, I think we always have to be in this movement from word to flesh. Um, I, I think if we embrace God as a verb, then our words always have to end up in flesh. To put it another way, words are the starting point, but they aren't the ending point. Words are important. I've given my life to study words and texts, and I love it. I'm a word nerd. I love studying. I love everything about words. But for words to have their full weight and potential, they must always be wrapped in flesh and blood. In 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul wrote, For the kingdom, kingdom and I love that he, um, this translation in the Inclusive Bible, I love that it uses kingdom instead of kingdom. Kingdom is kind of an outdated term. Kingdom is more familial. For the kingdom of God is not just words, but power. The kingdom of God is not just words, but power. Talking matters, but when it doesn't culminate embodiment, it actually fails to reach its full potential. Words have meaning, absolutely, but their fullest meaning is what happens. I mean, we see this all the time, right? We, we are thoughts and prayers in ourselves to death in this country. And, and somehow thoughts and prayers have become the, the sort of the way we get around actually doing the hard work of figuring out what's going on in our culture, what's going on in our society. What, what is our obsession with violence? What is our obsession with um, some people doing really well and some people keeping some people at a, at a level where they're not doing really well? Like as we, as we engage those things, words, words don't have the impact of action. And so we begin with words, but then we move toward action. Our work as a community must be uh, to make sure that we are always moving toward incarnation, which is where we talked about last week, this idea we are always moving toward enfleshment. We are always moving toward taking these ideas and things and, and actually embodying them in the work of healing and restoration in the world. And so those are my commitments. Those are the things I, I want to see happen in my own life, in my own experience of God. I, I want to cultivate awareness and intention, intentionality. I want, to, I want to cultivate and use my imagination. And as a community, I hope that we'll really use our imagination for what's possible when we work together. And then I always want my own experience to be one of moving from words to flesh. There's a poet named Wild Bill Balding. His actual name is Bill Thomas. And he wrote a poem called God is a Verb that I stumbled on this week. And I want to end by sharing it. God is a verb, not a noun. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Dynamic, seething, 
active web of love poured out, given, received, exchanged, one God in vibrant community, always on the move, slipping through our fingers, blowing through the nets we cast, to hold and name, confined to nouns, to labels, freeze-frame stasis, pinned like a butterfly, solid, cold, controlled, lifeless. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Not pinned down by names, labels, buildings, traditions, or even by nails to wood. I am a verb, not a noun. Living, free, exuberant, always on the move. I love so many of the images he uses here. This idea of trying to confine God to a box, to a label, to a noun, when God is actually a vibrant, moving, energetic reality. God is a verb. May we embrace the verbification of God in our community, in our individual life. May may we actually see what's happening is not us in a relationship with some being above the clouds, but us connected to an energy and a movement and a reality that is right here among us. We are the, God is the water and we are the fish. And our call is simply to join the action in the world.